Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Shannon. And I'm Danica. We're going to tell you the story of two men that lived at what they named Corpsewood Manor. First off, let me say that I read about this case many, many years ago. And most of what I found out was nothing like what I read then. I also want to say this came back to life when I was thinking of the McMartin daycare trials and wondering what caused the satanic panic. And this story popped up in doing some of the research on that. Let's start first with Dr. Charles Scudder. He was married twice and divorced twice after short-lived marriages. He was first married at the age of 19, and that marriage only lasted a matter of months. His second marriage was in the 50s, and he was married long enough to have four sons in four years, all born in the 50s as well. He was a professor at Loyola University and bought a mansion in Chicago, which apparently wasn't in the best shape and not really in the best part of town. He adorned his home with Baroque furniture, which is furniture style popular in the 17th century that is very large and ornate furniture. So like pretty much what you would expect to see in a castle then? That is very much how I would describe it this kind of furniture, yes. He was an avid harp player, and he was invited to play in the Chicago Symphony. Due to the fact that he had four sons in this large home, he had to have a living cook named Joseph Odom. Now, I couldn't find anything that says his sons lived with him, but I would have to assume that he probably had maybe the typical every other weekend visits since this was, you know, around the 50s and 60s. Turns out Joseph wasn't just the cook, but also Charles' partner. Charles and, and I assume Joseph, too, began dreaming of living off the grid. Even then, Charles's sons were all grown, and he had inherited some money when his mother passed away, which started them thinking they would sell everything they didn't need and just live off the grid. They started looking for land. As I said, they live in Chicago and they wanted something where winter wasn't quite as brutal. The two found 40 acres of land in Georgia that they bought. On Charles's 50th birthday, he turned in his resignation. This was October of 1977. Charles began selling all the things he didn't deem necessary. He sold most everything or he gave it away. Things such as a toaster was no use to the two of them because where they were going, that wasn't going to be needed because they weren't going to have electricity. He did keep a few prized possessions, one of those being his heart. He sold the house and the two of them, along with their two dogs, English Mastiffs, set off to Georgia in December of 1977. The, le- the leaves have had long since fallen, 
from the trees when they arrived in the dead of winter, and the two named the area Corpsewood Manor because of what they said was hauntingly beautiful trees. They had a well dug for water, but the the two chose not to have electricity or gas on the property. They lived in a camper while they began to build their home themselves. They planted vegetables to eat in a vineyard where Charles used the grapes to make his own wine. Charles gives an account of what caused he and Joseph to move to Georgia and what it was like setting up their homestead in an article he wrote in Mother Earth News. If you want to read it, it's actually pretty impressive. They used a wood-burning stove to cook, dug their own foundation, and used 45,000 bricks on the wall of their home, which was also what I would call a little mini castle. Charles deemed himself a Satanist. If you ask him what he believed, and it was evident by the things he made or chose to adorn their home with. Charles made his own stained glass, and one such glass in the house was made of Baphomet Seagull, which is the symbol of the Church of Satan. He had pentagrams painted on his Jeep doors. A voided check was later found that he had written to the Church of Satan too to further prove his affiliation. Okay, is there a difference between a Baphomet Seagull and a pentagram? So a Baphomet Seagull is the goat face like you typically see and associate with Satan. It's also on the cover of the Satanic Bible. The pentagram is, of course, the star we're accustomed to seeing. But if the star is upside down, it's associated also to Satan. Once you see them side by side, you see the horns and everything for the goat and the face. It's just the pentagram you have to the image of the goat. Drank smoking pot and uh, whatever is the motive, most pleasure thing. Most people come in the yard, do their own thing, come up here and do, get away, I get up a little bit tired or anything like that. What, do you, what did you do when you came up here? Well, I practice nudism. I'm a great believer in nudist life. And I like to come in and do some new nude sunbathing and practice nudism or something and do, do my thing here too. Were you a welcome guest, Dr. Scudder and, and Joey Odom? Yes, they were. They were welcome just so much. They did when I came. We were good friends. Did you ever eat up here? Did you eat some of Joey's cooking? People tell me it was real good. Yeah, we did. We ate our supper. Enjoyed it. Had a birthday. Somebody gave him a gift, and we had some baked beans, a coleslaw, and salad. And they they gave me some tea to drink, and they drank wine. Would you show me all around Corpsewood? Be glad to. Okay. So this is a sound clip from Zeke, the nudist neighbor nudist neighbor freak no i don't know <laughs> well judgmental there okay no nudist neighbor who apparently hung out with uh with these two yes so this is how this of course came up when i was looking into satanic panic danica you and i were talking about this when i brought this case up a while back because we actually both were shocked at some of the things we had learned. And I, for one, learned that the Church of Satan was not founded until 1966 by a man named Anton LeVay. 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 I know you listened to a podcast, Danica, and learned a little bit about this. So what did you say you were surprised about? 
Okay, so um, I'm going to shout out this podcast. It, it only seems fair. It was, um, well, it's kind of two, Obituary and Cult Leader. But they're both hosted by Spencer Henry and Obituary also has Madison Reyes. But anyway, so what I learned was it, that surprised me was that they don't actually worship Satan. They don't drink blood. They don't kill animals and sacrifice them. In fact, there are like 11 satanic rules. One of them is not to harm animals unless they attack you or it's for food. Um, it's actually pretty mind-blowing and a little bit backwards for my, I think everyone assumes that it is. I am still looking into it more because I don't know exactly where the whole media buzz came from and who decided all this, but that's for another episode once I figure that all out. Sorry, I ventured off a little off course, but... There is the reason this was on my radar. It's the 70s. You have two gay men living off the grid in a southern town in Georgia. With a nudist neighbor. <laughs> With a nudist neighbor. They stay to themselves pretty much, but they do have to go to town for building supplies and other things. Of course, people are going to talk, especially when you paint some pentagrams on your Jeep doors. People deem them the gay devil worshippers around town. You would think... That would keep people away, but they were in the South and on a lot of land. They apparently do have people come up all the time asking, can they hunt on their land? They end up meeting some of the locals because of this, and the two are great hosts, actually. Once they are done with the house, they build a three-story chicken coop. The first floor is for the chickens, of course. The second is for storing food and wine. The third is a room that is referred to as the pink room. It was apparently painted pink because someone just gave them pink paint that they had left over. It has some mattresses, kerosene lamps, and apparently a lot of porn. This was the late 70s and early 80s, so this was just magazines, I would have to assume, because you have to remember they didn't even have a TV or electricity for a TV, so... This had to just be magazines, I would assume. This is where they host their guests rather than in their home. And from what I found out, done some other things in the room. Pleasure things. Are you <laughs> trying to say it was a place for the bedroom rodeo? <laughs> Call it what you will, but a lot of wild stuff went on there. One of the guys they let hunt on their land was 17-year-old Avery Brock. Avery hadn't had the best of life. His father had kicked him out and he was on his own. And then he had a roommate that lived with him that was 30-year-old Tony Best. Avery befriends the men. He took part in the homemade wine and some sources said he enjoyed time in the, what'd you call it? The what room? That's the boom boom room. The boom boom room. Okay. So I don't know. We do know that Avery decided that the two were rich and he wanted to rob them. While it may seem like, like it, you know, with this beautiful mini castle they built adorned with stained glass and gargles and the three-story chicken coop, the couple had actually put pretty much all their life savings into buying the land and building their home. The two made plans to rob the men, though, on December 12, 1982, Avery and Tony decided they're going to do that. Avery, being 17, invites friends 
over along with his girlfriend. The couple had no idea what they were getting into. I've never had a friend bring me to a surprise robbery, um, but I'm going to assume it didn't go over as well as maybe like a surprise birthday party, did it? No, it definitely did not. They are hanging out in the pink room with Charles drinking his homemade wine and getting high on toodaloo. On what? Toodaloo. It's a homemade concoction using alcohol, paint thinner, and glue. You apparently sniff it and get high. So Joseph is in the house still cleaning up after dinner. Avery tells the group he's got to go back to the car to get more toodaloo and he'll be right back. Wait, hang on. So you literally put this up your nose? I thought they just sniff it and get high. If they sniff it, what do they need more? I, I don't know. I'm not an expert in this stuff. I didn't even know what it was until I started reading this, but maybe they wanted to have their own individual puffers or toodaloo, whatever they use. Anyway, that's not the point because he doesn't even go get any more. He comes back with a gun. Charles doesn't even take him seriously when he comes in. He actually says, bang, bang, when he sees him with a gun. Avery grabs Charles by the hair, holds a knife to his throat, asking him where the money is. Charles tells him they don't have much money, but what they have is in the bank. So, Tanika, do you think he's feeling a little bit dumb right now? Like, I mean, I guess if you're seeing guys living on the land, you're probably assuming they don't use a bank either. Then all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, wow, that didn't even cross my mind that your money might actually be in a bank. Yeah, he probably feels dumb, but, you know, like also like they didn't plan this out very well to begin with. Avery takes off for the castle. He asks Joseph for the money, of which he has none. The four left in the pink room hear gunshots fired. Avery has just shot and killed not only Joseph, but the two dogs. Oh, not the dogs. Yes. So Tony ushers Charles and the other two down to the castle and asks Charles again for the money. When he's unable to give them what they want, he shot the two ransack the house to find what they think they can steal and make money on and what might be valuable there. The two morons pull Charles's gold harp outside to take it before they realize it won't fit in the car. They get what they can and they steal Charles's Jeep too. They take Avery's friend back and tell them not to tell anyone. Meanwhile, the two are fleeing in the Jeep and planning on going to Mexico. The two drive through the night in Charles's Jeep and make it to a rest stop in Mississippi. That's when the two of them decide they should probably steal something a little less conspicuous, which in my opinion, this is probably the only smart decision they made in this entire thing is to get rid of a Jeep that's got pentagrams painted all over it. Yeah, I feel like, like if I pass that Jeep, it would probably stand out to me. Yeah. So they see a man sleeping in his Toyota, 26-year-old Kirby Phelps. They force him out of his car and lead him into a wooded area where Kirby tries to escape and Tony shoots him. The two end up having an argument and Avery starts hitchhiking now. Also, this is why I'm terrified to pick up a hitchhiker, so I don't. Avery returns to Georgia and he calls his mother and he tells her or she tells him that there's a warrant for his arrest. Hey, how did she know about that? 
So four days after the murders, a friend of Charles and Joseph came by to visit and came up on the grisly scene. Of course, they didn't have a phone. There wasn't cell phones then. This was, um, so he runs back to town to let the police know. The headlines were crazy, and this made national news. One of the teens that was there for the ride went to the police and told them what happened. That's when the arrest warrants were made due to the coverage. It was hard not to know about it. Once his mom told him about the arrest warrant and probably the media circus, he knew he wasn't getting far, and he turned himself into the police. Tony makes it to Missouri before he decides to head back. He uh, makes it to Tennessee, and then he runs out of gas. He's also out of money, so he, too, decides to turn himself in on December 25th. Merry Christmas to the cops. Yes. Both of these guys are sentenced to life in prison. I tried finding more information on Avery, but I couldn't find anything. I found that his father kicked him out, but, of course, he called his mother, you know, during all this. So I'm thinking... You know, I don't know if his parents were still together or what happened in that whole situation. Why he, you know, if he could call his mom during that time, what happened with that whole situation? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still amazed at what a mess they made of their lives. They shot two men for money they never got. They killed another man for a car. They ran out of money. They both turned themselves in for what? They got nothing from this except oh, life sentences. People make. Running makes people do crazy things and the lack of it, too, I guess, because these two were just complete idiots. This is crazy. But I guess for me, the thing is, you know, this talked about during the satanic panic, but the so-called Satan worshipers weren't even the ones doing the killing. I know. They got killed. Yes. For nothing, really. I mean, for a Jeep with pentagrams on it that they ditched later. So it's crazy that this was part of the satanic panic push when the people who quote unquote were evil were just like living out minding their own business. Yeah, they were minding their own business, doing nothing wrong. They're just hanging out with their nudist neighbors. <laughs> yes, their nudist neighbor having baked beans and coleslaw and their homemade wine. Their homemade wine, but and maybe some toodaloo. No, the toodaloo was by these goofballs that brought it in. Well, but, I mean, they per- took in the toodaloo, but I don't think they were making their own. No. From no. what I could tell. But, yeah, it's it's crazy that this was part of the satanic panic. And it's really crazy when you start reading about the whole satanic panic and what the Satanists were really like. Yeah. It's just, uh, you. I know this was, you know, pre-social media, but you see it a lot even now, um, you know. People decide this is what it is, and then it kind of goes off with it, whether it's really the truth or not. Um, clearly, media frenzy was a big thing in this, uh, pre-social media, but it was still a big deal. You, you still had TV unless you were them and you had no electricity. <laughs> yeah. um, newspapers, you know, so it was a big deal, and it was kind of like there was no fact-checking things. That's true. And, so you just... Yeah. You assume that what the media is telling you is the truth. Um, and they, they turn the victims in 
to the bad guys. They did. They were they were like these two gay satanic worshipers, and they're showing pictures of the house on the news of all their satanic stuff. And yeah, they really made them the victims. Yeah, the headline should have been like uh, these two men minding their own freaking business were killed by a teenager and a grown man for money that they didn't get. Yeah. But it was really sad to go back and see those headlines because they they were the they were just made to be monsters. And it's crazy. And it it talks a lot about or it shows a lot about the era that, you know, Satanists were feared, you know, um those in the LGBTQ lifestyle were feared and villainized. Um, and they had both of those going on. So they were doubly villainized. And I think that that is really um, what the media wanted. They wanted them to be villains because they weren't quote unquote normal. Um, you're just really sad because they, they weren't hurting anybody. Yeah. But yeah, like getting back to your point, they were just out there minding their own business and they just got people all up in their business. Yeah. I wanted to live off the grid if they were sick of y'all. <laughs> and you still all up in their business. I was kind of surprised their money was in a bank, so. I was, I was too. I was kind of like, oh, they keep their money in a bank? Wow. I really thought it would be under your mattress or in your fridge or freezer or whatever. I did too. Not going to lie. Well, we hope that we could shed some more light. Uh, we will probably do some other cases that are related to satanic panic. So it's a really big deal. But we want to give you all the real stories, um, not what the media said. So now you know that they were not evil. They were just trying to live their life. And they they got taken out by some people who were greedy. So the more you know. We always recommend more bubbly and less OJ. Cheers! If you'd like to see pictures from today's episode, you can find us at murder.mimosas on Instagram. You can also find us at murder.mimosas on TikTok, Twitter. And if you have a case you would like us to do, you can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us. So please rate and review us on Spotify iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.